Good evening. Oh, that's better. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and um, turn with me tonight to uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7 tonight. Um, I know we have a regular crowd, but I, I do see some visitors. So normally we're just going book by book and, and verse by verse. We recently uh, finished the book of Leviticus. And uh, so um, we're in between books. And I'm, uh, me and my family, we're kind of on our way out. We've got a few more teaching slots here. So what I've been doing the last couple of Wednesdays and will continue to do is, um, for lack of a better word, freelance, where um, I'm just kind of seeing how the Lord leads uh, each week. Um, there's no want for material. It's a big Bible. There's a lot to teach. But sometimes that's harder. It's easier actually to know, you know, when you're in chapter 3 and you know you're teaching chapter 4, you know, the next week. I say that because, because I'm kind of praying through each week what to do and trying to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a danger in that. Sometimes it's like, okay, Lord, it's Monday. What do you want to say on Wednesday? God, it's Tuesday. What are we doing for Wednesday? God, it's Wednesday. What are we doing? Um, and that was kind of the case this week. You know, I was t telling Pastor Steve, I was like, Steve, you got to pray for me, man. I don't, usually by Monday, I know exactly where I'm headed. But it really wasn't until this morning at about 530 in my own personal time with the Lord. And I never do my personal time with the Lord in the text of where I'm going to teach because I like to keep that separate. But once in a while, they overlap. And so I, I really felt like God put a word on my heart just this morning um, that I want to share with you guys. So, you know, it may not be super like, uh, I don't know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This is the example of what I'm, exactly what I'm trying to say. It's not going to be all like polished and everything, but um, from my heart and um, maybe a little disjointed, but you guys will, you guys will get it. So that's my disclaimer. Um, Isaiah chapter 7 tonight, we're just going to look at the first nine verses. So um, I'll just read them straight through and then we'll circle back and we'll um, pull apart a few things, make a couple of applications Hopefully just really tap into what the Lord wants to say tonight. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of all the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway that is uh, to the washer's field. Verse 4. And say to him, Be careful. Be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you saying, let us go up to Jerusalem, or excuse me, Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, 
For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from, pe- from even being a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Lord, thank you for your word. We praise you, God. And Father, I just, want, I just take this moment because it's always a humbling thing to be the guy standing and opening the Bible, and there's a heaviness and a responsibility to that, and I understand that. But Father, we are so grateful for your inspired, authoritative, inerrant, spiritual word that is timeless and applicable in our lives. And so, Lord, this may have been written thousands of years ago, but, Lord, it's for us tonight. Would you help us by your Spirit to find application and to not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the the passage that we just read here, um, you know, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the book of Isaiah or the history of Judah and Israel, um, and it's been a while for me too, so it's, it's good to kind of revisit this, but the passage that we just read, in essence, was um, coming during a time of crisis. It was a time of crisis for King Ahaz, and um, in essence, what God does is he sends Isaiah on a task to encourage and both um, encourage and exhort uh, King Ahaz. And so uh, we're going to look at that, and I'll delve into a little bit of the context because the, the context is important. But really what, I'll just kind of cut to the chase for a minute before we go too much further, is what really snagged me this morning when I was reading this text is the last part of verse 9, and that's why I kind of slowed down and read it the way I, that I did. It says this, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So Isaiah comes to King Ahaz in the midst of a crisis and, and gives him this encouraging word uh, coupled with an exhortation, and, then he, and he, then he just lays this little pro tip you know, to him and says, look, and if you're not firm in your faith, you're not going to be firm at all. You need to believe what God has told you to be true, and if you don't, then God really can't do much for you. <laughs> and that's kind of what I want to talk about. But I want to talk about that in its context, so we'll get to that. So I mentioned that the context of this is that of a crisis. Let me explain that a little bit by just looking at the history of this for, for a moment. Um, there's some key players here. It starts by saying in verse 1, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son or the grandson of Uzziah. Um, most of you probably know this, um, but at this time when Isaiah wrote, Isaiah, the prophecy, somewhere around 734, Israel, you know, what we just call Israel, was really divided into two parts, the nation. Um, This had happened a long since, you know, before Isaiah wrote this, but there was a civil war back after the death of Solomon that uh, split the nation in two. And the northern part of the nation was just called Israel. This can get confusing if you don't know this, especially when you're reading through like Kings and Chronicles. So the northern part would just be called Israel or Ephraim. That's why it's Later on, it's referred to as Ephraim. Ephraim was the largest tribe in that, na- in that part of the nation, so sometimes it was just synonymous for Israel. Then there was a southern kingdom, 
called Judah, or sometimes the sons of David. Judah was where Jerusalem was, Bethlehem. It was like the heart of the, of the nation. And so there was this civil war between them, and then as years went by, they were just at each other all of the time, unfortunately just wanting to go at it all the time. So what, this is during the days of King Ahaz. Quick word on King Ahaz, just so you know, because it actually does play into this. Ahaz is the grandson of Uzziah and the son of Jotham. May or may not mean much to you. Uzziah was one of the greatest and godliest kings that Judah ever had. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, and it was like, that was just a heavy time because Uzziah was awesome. Study his life. He had a son named Jotham, or Jotham, who was also a very godly man. But then he had a son named Ahaz, and Ahaz did not take after his dad or his granddad. He was a wicked, evil perverse king. He was 20 years old when he started to reign. He reigned for 16 years, and as the Bible says, and he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. I love those little summary sentences that these kings often get. One of the wicked things that he did, one of the things that's noted for all of eternity is, uh, is Ahaz burned his son um, to, the, to the gods of Moloch, the very god that, that Steve was talking about on Sunday. He sacrificed his son to the idol Moloch and burned him alive and was involved in all kinds of disgusting and hideous idol worship, all the while keeping the temple running and putting on the front and keeping the religious facade alive. And he just goes down in history as a pretty much a loser for the kingdom of Judah. That's important, as we'll see in a moment. Here's what happened, though. This King Ahaz, ruling in Jerusalem, is in the midst of a crisis. And the crisis is this. The king up in the north... Um, what's his name, Pika, uh, joins forces with Rezin, the king of Syria. And they come against Judah for the explicit reason of waging war and taking their stuff and just overthrowing them. So here's, here's, the, here's why the, the crisis is so, so heavy. Jerusalem, or excuse me, Israel by itself really was no match for Judah, but he, the king of Israel basically hires the Syrian army and the king, and together as they join forces, when they come down, now that's a real threat. That's a real problem. And Ahaz sees this coming, and they don't actually attack at the time, but they're taking some of the peripheral cities. Word gets back to him, you guys are King Ahaz. you got to understand, uh, the king of Israel and the king of Syria have joined forces against you. They're coming. This is real. This is not a drill. Just imagine something like that happening. It'll almost be like some, I don't know, let me think of some hypothetical thing that might set you off, like, like you're at work, and you get a text message that, that uh, North Korea just launched a missile, and it's heading to your aisle. I mean... That was kind of like, I mean, try to imagine that thing ever happening, right? That was this, you guys. They were like, the missile's coming. This is not a drill. Like, they're on their way. And the result of that is Ahaz, he's freaking out. And he's not just freaking out. The people are freaking out. He is in full panic, full crisis mode. Crisis. I looked up, I like dictionary.com. I use it a lot couple of their definitions for crisis. A condition of instability or danger as in social, economic, political, or international affairs leading to a decisive change. Or a dramatic emotional or circumstantial, circumstantial upheaval in a person's life. All of the above. Guys, 
Ahaz is in a crisis. The reason I'm kind of telling you his is because that's, I want to talk about in its context, the application. But the reality is, if you're sucking air, you will at some point, probably several points in your life, experience crisis. Our nation will experience crisis. I believe we're experiencing crisis. I believe that we, we experience it on a national level, we'll experience it on a personal level. Maybe you're here tonight and you're in the middle of a crisis. An emotional upheaval, a turn of events circumstantially that is making a decisive change in your status quo and you're not sure how to grip with it. Maybe it's a sickness, maybe it's a financial crisis, maybe it's a relational crisis, maybe it's an emotional, I don't know. But whether you're here going through a crisis or not, you can bet your bottom dollar that at some point you will. And so that makes me perk up a little bit when I, when I think of it in those terms because I want to see how he handled this. I want to see how he handled this. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go. But so let's move on. So what happens next? So Ahaz is in this crisis. And what happens next, look at verse 3. The Lord says to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz. Take your son, Shear Jeshub. That's a whole other sermon right there. His son's name literally means a remnant will return. How would you like that to be your name? Taking role. A remnant will return here. It's just an awkward name. But the whole point of that was is that Israel, excuse me, Isaiah was prophesying to Judah saying, hey, you're going to be disciplined. God's going to remove you from the land, but he's going to be faithful and he's going to bring you back. And as a testimony to that, names his kid, a remnant shall return. Anyway, I told you I wasn't going to go there. I just went there. Um, take your son, go to this certain place, this conduit, and meet up with Ahaz and give him this message. What happens is God basically dispatches Isaiah to go give King Ahaz a message. And it's a good message, you guys. It's a, it's a timely message. And this is what it was. I just want to take a couple of minutes to look at it again. Look at verse 4. This is the message. He basically says, be careful. Be careful. And you might have a different translation. Um, I'm reading from the ESV, and that literally means, when it says be careful, it literally means keep a guard. I'm, I really want to get ahead of myself on this. I'll try not to. But he says basically keep a guard. On what? In essence, on the way that you're thinking right now. How many of you guys know that when crisis hits, you can sometimes think wrong and scramble and make bad decisions? He says Cool your jets. Be on guard. Be careful. And then he says, be quiet. Now, that doesn't mean shut your mouth. It, it just, it literally means be at peace. Be undisturbed. Don't have anxiety. Don't have anxiety. We're about to die. You know, we're about to get murdered in our sleep, and you're telling me don't have anxiety? That's exactly what he says. I, hey, look, listen, you guys. He says, be quiet. Be still. Don't have anxiety. Be on guard, be careful. Don't fear. I love that. Don't. Did you know, by the way, little fun fact, little Bible fun fact, do not fear or fear not, or one, however you combination of that phrase is made up, is one of the most repeated command statements in the Bible. Something like 200 times in the Bible, we're, we are told not to fear. Do you know who gets told not to fear? People that are. Afraid, exactly. So he's afraid, and he comes to him and says, Whew, be on guard with the way you're thinking. Be at peace. Don't be fearful. And then this is my favorite. He says, don't let, don't let your heart be faint. 
The word faint there is interesting to me. It means weak, tender, soft, complete lack of courage. This is my favorite one. Exceedingly pliable. And this is my added, I did not get this next word from a Bible dictionary. I'm inserting it. Flimsy. Exceedingly pliable means flimsy. Don't have a flimsy heart right now. Because that's what can happen in crisis. When all rational thought goes out the window and all everything goes out the window and all of a sudden you just, you just melt and you're just like, everything <laughs> He's like, don't do that. Have courage. Don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be flimsy right now. But he, he doesn't just throw that out there and hang it on nothing. Now he gives them the reason why he can do those things. I'm not going to go verse by verse to it again. I'll just sum it up. Basically, what he says is, it's not going to happen. I know you think this is going to go down, but I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. He basically says, look, don't fear these two smoking stumps of wood. That's, that's like ancient trash talk, kind of. Like, they're not even trees anymore. They're cut down, burned piece of wood. All they can do is smoke and stink, but they got nothing. They're dead as far as I'm concerned. He goes on to say, in fact, within 65 years, Ephraim's not even going to be a people anymore. Exactly what Isaiah said, by the way, happened. This was written in 734. By 732, two years later, Assyria attacked um, Syria, and the king of Syria died. And then within two years, the king of uh, Israel died. And then in 722, the Assyrians invaded the northern part of Israel and completely destroyed Israel. You guys remember that from your history? They went in. They didn't just destroy them. They literally took them out and then brought Assyrian people in. And then in 669, which is like the 65-year mark, there was another full like insurgent of, of bringing Assyrians into that area. And exactly what God said came true. I mean, that would have been hard to swallow in the moment, right? Hey, don't freak. Why? Because I know it looks like they're about to kill you and they have every power to do it and they are looking like they're unstoppable, but I'm telling you right now, it's not going to happen. In fact, they're going to die. In fact, within 65 years, that's not even going to be a people anymore, so don't sweat it. He gives them a promise. That must have been pretty encouraging. Amen? Yes or no? How many of you guys would like in the middle of your crisis to like some prophet to show up at your door and be like, I uh, just got a quick message from God. Don't sweat it. Everything's going to be fine. Like, thank you. Thank you. I needed that. But it's that last phrase that really gets me. And it's almost like he inserted this. I, I know it's, it was straight from the Lord, but he says in verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and he's basically just a roundabout way of saying, don't worry about it, these guys, it's not going to happen. And then he says, and if you are not firm in your faith, or in faith, you will not be firm at all. Let me read that to you from a couple of different translations because it's translated several different ways. It's a little bit obscure, evidently. I don't read Hebrew, but evidently in the Hebrew it's a little obscure. And so there's different variances in its translation. Um, I read to you from the ESV, the New Living Translation says this, Unless your faith is firm, I can't make you stand. Ooh, now we're getting a little closer to it, aren't we? Unless your faith is firm, I can't make you stand. I can't establish you. And then I, I think my favorite is the NIV. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Does that resonate with anybody besides me? Just reading that? 
he's in a crisis, he's been given a promise, the word of God, and he basically says, but look, in essence, he's saying, if you don't believe what I just told you, you're not going to be firm. You're not going to be able to stand up under the weight of this pressure, and I'm not going to be able to do really what I want to do in you and through you. It's almost like he's saying, look, what I just promised is going to happen whether you like it or not. I'm telling you it's going to happen. How do you guys know that if God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen? Yes and amen. If he says, uh, you know, well, I don't have to give you an example. Like, this whole Bible, a quarter of it is predictive prophecy. And about half of that has already come to pass to the letter. And the other half of that will come to pass to the letter. When God says something's going to happen, it will happen. If he makes a promise, it comes true. So he basically says, what I say is going to happen will happen. But if you don't believe and trust me and trust my word, then you're not going to be strong. You're not going to be established. Does that make sense? still going to happen, but you're going to be a mess. And I'm not going to be able to do what I want in you and through you. Now, let me just kind of give you the rest of the story for, for Ahaz, and, the, and I'll try to make some applications for us. And, and this is, then we'll be done. I told you it's going to be a, a short night. But here's basically what happened. Uh, it didn't go well for Ahaz. In fact, the verses I didn't read a little further on is one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. Because he says, Ahaz, ask a sign for me just to prove. Now, now, now think about that. Not only in the middle of your crisis do you go like, uh, get a, a, a knock at the door from a prophet says, oh, by the way, God knows exactly what you're going through. It's not going to happen. Don't sweat it. That would be good enough. But then he goes, in fact, he wants you to ask a sign, any sign you want, as high or as low as you can possibly imagine. I'll do whatever you need to just show you. That's what he said Ahaz could do. Now, I, I'm summing it up. Go back and read it later. But basically, Ahaz says, oh, Lord, I, I wouldn't want to trouble you with an unholy sign. That's so immature. And he didn't talk like that, but Isaiah basically says to him, let me just find it actually. He says, is it too little for you to weary men? Are you going to weary God also? <laughs> See, Ahaz played it off like, oh, I don't need a sign or whatever. And that may have looked very holy or spiritual on the outside. But what really was going on is that Ahaz had zero intention of trusting and obeying God whatsoever. So he's like, oh, a sign's not necessary. You see, what happened is 2 Kings chapter 16 tells us the real behind-the-scenes story. Behind the scenes, instead of, instead of Ahaz saying, okay, I know it looks like we're going to get demolished, but God said, and I'm going to stand on it, and I'm going to be firm, and we're going to trust the Lord, what does he do? He raids the temple, steals all this gold, steals all the silver, goes to the treasury of the king, steals all the money from there, and hires the Assyrians. Instead of trusting God, he puts his trust in other men. He manipulates the situation. And guess what? It worked. Seemingly. It kind of worked. They turn him away and all of that. And then, oh, by the way, a little side note since we're talking about it. So Ahaz, after the victory or whatever, goes up to visit uh, Tel, well, I forget his name, Tilgath Pelazar, whatever the guy's name was in Assyria. And while he's there, he notices they have a sweet altar to one of their demonic idols. And he's like, I want one of those. And he gets the plans for it, the blueprints for it, sends it back to Jerusalem and says, guys, can you make one just like this? And takes away the bronze altar in the courtyard of the temple 
and replaces it with this idol and then like makes some other modifications to the temple and just kind of inserts his own religion into Judaism and just kind of morphs it into what he wants it to be, which is very apropos for where our culture is as well, just kind of mush it all together. All that to say is he takes Judah into incredible depth of idolatry. This guy's story does not end well. So that's what had happened. So let me just, that's the story. That's the, the nuts and bolts of it. But I want to just look at this maybe for our, for our benefit, maybe a couple applications to think about. It's not complicated. I don't think this is like hard to wrap our brains around, but I kind of just sense it's, it's a word for a few of us that are in here tonight, very specifically, and one of those things that we, like I said last week, that you kind of go, okay, maybe I'm not in a crisis today, but I need to hold on to this for tomorrow. The first thing I want to make notice of is this, and you can jot it down if you want to or not, but um, I just want to say this. In times of crisis, it can make your faith firm or flimsy. In times of crisis, it can make your faith either firm, firm it up, or you can just get real flimsy. Let me ask you a question. Do you guys find it weird that God even reached out to Ahaz? I mean, what prompted God to go to this wicked king that he already knew would make a mess of things and give him this word of total encouragement and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to allow part of me that attack to happen. I'm going to save the nation. I'm going to do all this. And if you just believe me, I will establish you. I personally believe, yeah, grace is what it is, by the way. But I love that because, listen, I personally believe that God was wanting to use that crisis as the vehicle to get Ahaz into a whole new relationship with God. That makes sense? I believe God wanted to use the crisis as a turning point in the life of Ahaz to where he could start a whole new relationship with God and at that point put his faith in God and see what God would do. I don't, I mean, God was just being gracious to, to, to encourage him and all of that, but I really believe God wanted to use that crisis to change his mind and to kind of break him a little bit and get him in the right direction. How many of you guys have found out that in a crisis, you can either press into God or pull away from God, right? Think about, just, just for a moment, pause there and think. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the life of people in the church. I've seen it in the country. I've seen it in church life, at, you know, at, at large. Hard times, financially, persecution, pressure, whatever the, you know, insert your crisis here can either be a vehicle to get you closer to God, but if you let it, it can actually push you away from God. What are you going to do? Because here's what it all hinges on, faith. Are you going to believe what God says is true in the midst of your crisis? Are you going to trust him? Now, this is a little borderline here. I want to clarify what I mean and what I don't mean. I don't mean, are you going to trust him to make everything okay? You know why a lot of people say they're disappointed in God or God let me down? Do you know that God has never, ever let anyone down, ever? But what he has done is not done what we wanted him to do. 
or lived up to our expectation or done things in the circumstance to how we wanted it to be and how we saw it getting done. But God is trustworthy and God will never fail. Amen? This is a huge lesson. You have to get this down. You have to, I have, I'm not, when I say you guys, please know, like, I'm not coming from a position of I've got this down, listen to everything I say. I'm probably teaching this more to you tonight because it's something I need to hear this week or in my life. Is that, guys, in times of crisis, in times of hard, you know, struggle or whatever, I have a choice. I'm either going to draw into God and put my foot on the solid rock of his promises and his word and his character and who he is, or I'm going to start questioning everything and backpedal and, uh, and play the victim and whatever it might be. It can either make you go deeper into God or it can push you away from God. The old saying is true, the sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Are you going to be the softened wax or are you going to be the hardened clay? I knew it. God's against me. Dun, 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 dun. And you see some people, how they navigate trials, navigate crisis in their life, and they come out, some people come out on one hand, and they are deeper in love with Jesus and more passionate about Christ. And yeah, wounded and hurt and, and walking with the limp, but man, they just, their love for God is deeper. Their trust in Him is more robust. And then others, well, psh, I'm not going to church anymore because God let me down and da-da-da-da, and, and they just are quit, and they're, they're just harder and harder and harder. Don't be that guy. <laughs> in your crisis tonight, in your crisis you're going through, here's what I want to say to you. Trust God's word. Trust God's word. It's as if he's saying, I can't really help you unless you trust me. He's going to be faithful to his word either way. But how are we going to be in the midst of the waiting? <laughs> We're either going to trust him or we're going to scramble like Ahaz did and try to make things happen in our own effort. How many of you guys are good at that? I'm really good at that. I'll finally put my trust in God once I've exhausted all my resources, all my networking, all I've called X, Y, and Z and put this deal together and bail myself out here, deedly, deedly, do, and I'm just so smart, so, you know. But how crazy would it be if just right off the bat, in the midst of crisis, you fall to your knees and say, God, I can't do this. I need you. And Lord, I'm going to trust you. And your word says all things are working together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And good may not necessarily mean something that I like, but it goes on later in that verse and says I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. So this trial's making me more into the image of Christ. I'm going to praise you. Oh, it's crazy talk. How many Christians actually talk like that? Guys, we talk just like the world so often. I'm getting ahead of myself. But point number one, in the time of crisis, it'll either make you flimsy or firm in your faith. Be firm in your faith. Stand on the promises of God's word. Number two, th these are not real clear to find. I'm still kind of almost working through these in my head still, just trying to make them clear to you guys as well. But number two, I would put this. Um, I don't even know how to put this other than to say... Um, If we don't trust God and we don't trust his word in the times of crisis, in those times of trial, we experience so much unnecessary anxiety, fear, and pain. What did God say to him? He said, I guess I don't need my glasses. This is just a habit I do, I think. Um, he said to him, be careful. 
Even before he told him the promise, he front-loaded it with says, be careful. We've got to get it right here. Be careful, which was means keep guard over what? The way you think. You're in the crisis. Be careful. Can I say to you tonight, in the middle of your crisis, be careful. About what? How you think. Philippians 4.8 says, whatever things are true, and it goes on and on and on, various things, think on these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, somewhere around verse 5, it says that the weapons of our warfare are not, you know, carnal, but they're spiritual, to the pulling down of strongholds and, 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 you know, all those things. But it says, and taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We have to think correctly in the times of trial. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You can't let thoughts run wild. You have to take them captive. You have to be proactive in this. Oh, God's forgotten me. God, da, 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 da. When you find those thoughts coming in, you have to proactively say, that's not true. I do this sometimes out loud because I feel like I'm in a battle sometimes. And I'm like, no. God's word says, I will supply all your needs according to my riches. And whatever the need is, I, I combat it with the truth of God's word. And sometimes I think we're such pushovers. And we need to be a little, dare I say, militant in the spiritual realm. And say, Lord, no. I'm not going to just let my thoughts run amok. The Bible says be joyful. The Bible says count it all joy when you go through trials of various kinds. And I could give you verse after verse and you could give me some too. But the point is, is that you've got to be careful. And you've got to think correctly. Be on guard in your brain going through trials. Secondly, he said, be quiet, be at peace, be at peace. You really can be at peace in the midst of a crisis if you're trusting God and standing on his word. Amen? We talked a lot about that last week, so I'll let that one lie. And he says, don't be fearful. Fears, I, fear makes me angry when I see what fear does to people. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear and the Father loves you perfectly and you have nothing to fear. I kind of paraphrase that, but 1 John. Don't be fearful. Maybe you're going through something tonight where you're fearful. You're fearful, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to do this? How, how is this going to work out in my relationship? How are we going to do the, you know, whatever, the house thing or whatever you're fearful about and maybe just you're gripped by that. Fear not, fear not. And that's not just hanging out there like, oh, just a nice thought, you know, just a meme, you know, fear not. Everything. You know, like it has nothing, no teeth to it. Fear not because God loves you and God has got promises and God's got your life and God's in control. Amen? And then he says, uh, and don't let your heart be faint or weak or lose courage or be extra pliable. The point I'm trying to make is um, when we don't trust God, when we don't, in crisis or really in any other time of our lives, if we don't put our trust in him, then we're not established. We are weak. We carry all this extra unnecessary anxiety and fear and doubt, and we just are like, and then what happens? We're Debbie Downer Christians. Guys, I'm not saying this out of like some arrogant thing like I've got it all together. I'm the worst at this. In times of trial, guys, that's when as Christians, we really are supposed to shine. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope, Peter says. The whole context of what he says is in the midst of persecution and trials and hard times. 
We're not supposed to put on some fake plastic, like, hey, everything's always awesome. Like the Lego movie, everything is awesome. Everything's not always awesome. But internally, we can have this, you know, settled rest and peace that God has got this. There's a a business owner on the island. I don't want to mention Mike Pierce's name, but, you know, the whole shutdown has been hard on a lot of businesses. But every time I've seen Mike, and I'm going to brag on him, he's not here, but he'd probably be angry with me if I did. And I don't know where, I don't know their financials or whatever, but I mean, all you got to do is look at the parking lot. There's not a lot of people coming, right? But every time I've talked to him, it's been like, how are things going? Oh, praise the Lord, he's got it. I don't know exactly what tomorrow holds, but you know, whatever he says. Here's the funny thing. I believe him. I like believe that guy when he says that. Like, I think he actually trusts God. What's the matter with this guy? But when we don't, as Christians, not only do we carry all this unnecessary baggage, pain, anxiety, and what have you, we also are a horrible witness to everyone around us. We're a horrible witness. I am a horrible witness. Hey, how are things going? Well, I guess it'll be okay. Praise God, I guess. I'm sure he'll work it out if he can. Aren't you a pastor? Yes. Are you? I should come to your church because you're really lifting me up. We're just a bad witness sometimes. I won't even drag you into my mess. I'm a bad witness at times because of my lack of just trusting what God says, and I just get so frazzled in the moment and so, like, knocked off my base so easily. And, and when I do that, when I'm not firm in faith, I'm not established. And quite frankly, I think it just gives God a bad name sometimes. So I was thinking about this. Um, that's kind of the negative side of it, but how do we do this? How do, how do, we, be, how do we be firm, not flimsy? How do, we, how do we be firm in faith so as to be established? I want to give you three things real quick. No particular order, but maybe just jot the verses down if that helps you. Uh, these are good ones. Uh, Romans 10, 17 um, says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how, first of all, how do we build faith in what God has said? Well, you got to know what God said. you got to read his word. You got to put the word of God into you constantly. And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, specifically by the word, hearing by the word of God. Um, You've got to be filling yourself with the word of God all the time. You may not remember everything you say, you know, you read. You may not know the context of everything you read, but you've got to just stay in the word. I remember when I was in high school and I first started reading the Bible, my mom bought me this NIV student Bible, and I just highlight, verses would just pop, and I'd highlight those verses, and I'd I'd try to remember them. And and, and guys, so many of those are still with me. And we've got to put the word of God into us. And as you just read it and put it into you, your faith is, in a sense, built up. And then, by the way, when trials come, when temptations or whatever come, then the Holy Spirit has something to go into and grab and bring to the surface. You guys know what I'm talking about? Then he has a scripture to say, hey, that's in there. Let me bring that up for you. But, guys, we have to put it in. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do we uh, combat flimsy faith? Maybe I'll name the sermon that. Combating flimsy faith. Number one, you gotta, you gotta read the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ or the word of God. 
Secondly, um, and I'm not trying to be like cheeky about this, you have to read it, but you actually have to believe it. And there's two, that's, there's a world of difference in reading it and believing it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 4. Oops. Lost my spot. Hold on. Stand by. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It's a different context, but the, the principle is there. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering the rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Listen to verse 2. For good news or the gospel came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith for, with those who listened to it. The context of that is, is different. He's saying, look, when the children of Israel were going to go into the promised land, they had the promise, but they didn't believe God, so they never got to actually experience it. And he says the same thing can happen with us. We can have these great promises of the gospel, but never actually experience the rest in Christ that is available to us if we don't mix the message with faith. Amen? We, we can't be hearers of the word only. We have to trust it. We have to believe it. We have to stand on it. And, and guys, that's the magic combination, knowing the word of God, but then actually believing the word of God. And mixing the word, the good news, the message with faith. And then that's when we experience the promises of God. Amen? So now that's not always easy, but that's, that's number two, is we have to read it, we have to know it, and we have to, we have to believe it. Trust him. It's such a scary thing to do, but trust him. I am, okay, let me just pause just for a moment just to use myself as an example of what not to do. I know a lot of Bible verses. That is not a boast. It's just true. I've read the Bible a lot. I should probably know, I should know a lot more than I do know. But in my estimation, I don't really know that many. What I mean is they're in there, but how many of them are actually real to me? Oh, I can quote them to you, but how many of them actually are true and real in my life? And I, I'm coming to the realization I don't really know a scripture until it's real to me. I can quote to you, you know, be anxious for nothing but in all things with prayer and supplication, make request, and I can give you that whole verse. But how often is that real to me? And I want it to be real to me, amen? So you got to know the word of God, Hebrews, excuse me, Romans 10, 17. You got to believe the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. And I, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk, at the risk of sounding like a health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine teacher, I'm going to say this anyway. We need, to we need to speak the word of God. We need to speak it. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, what I don't mean by that. Let me read the verse, first of all. I'm taking this from Hebrews, excuse me, Romans chapter 4, verse 19. It's speaking of Abraham. And it's telling a story about God promised him a child. The child didn't come for years and years, decades, and yet he still trusted God. But this is what I want to point out. It says in verse 19, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Listen to verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but grew strong in his faith. There it is. As he gave glory to God. Different translations of that, I personally believe the ESV nails it. He didn't waver in his faith. He was given a specific promise, 
from God, and it was not only not happening, now it's impossible because he's like 100 years old, the baby-making machine's not working anymore. By all accounts, his wife's 90, whatever. There's no, like, physical way that they should be able to have a child. And he's like, well, but you know what? God said I'm going to have a baby, and I'm 100 years old. And this is the phrase that just really encourages me. It says this, but his faith grew strong as he gave glory to God. Here's, Here's why that's important. He wasn't giving the glory to God after the baby was born. He was giving glory to God before the baby was born. God, he was saying, praise God for that child. What child? You don't have a child. I know, but I'm going to. But here's the kicker. That, encouraged, that strengthened his faith. By speaking that, and now here's what I don't mean by this, because the health, wealth, prosperity doctrine, the word of faith doctrine that still has its tentacles out there, takes this very unbiblical reach that basically says you create your own reality with your words. You put your words out there into the energy and it creates your reality. So you say I'm rich and you say I'm prosperous. And and when you say it, it creates it. That is not biblical. That is metaphysical weirdness that is not biblical. I'm not talking about that. But what I am talking about is putting your money where your mouth is. If God says it's true, then it's going to be true. And, and sometimes, this is what I started to say earlier. I'm so guilty of this, of knowing something's true, but then being like, well, we'll see. Instead of saying, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to go on record right now and say, if God said it, it's going to happen. Now, I know that that can get a little subjective when you feel like God gave you a promise and did I hear him right, but... but I don't want to tackle that. What about the promises of his word that are written in black and white and clear? And you can say, I don't know, but I know this. God said this, so it's got to be true. But it looks impossible. I know, crazy. But praise God because, you know, he's not a liar. And if he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And you speak words of faith. See, the problem with bad doctrines like the health, wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it, doctrine, the problem with those doctrines is that they have elements of truth in them that get blown out of proportion. But I do think there is something to be said for vocalizing your faith and what God said to be true. And and my point from Romans 4 is that that wasn't necessarily for everybody else's sake. It was kind of for Abraham's sake. It says his faith was strengthened as he gave glory to God for something that hadn't happened yet, but there was a promise that it would. Amen? So, guys, all, thanks for bearing with me tonight. But here's what I just want to say is, is this. Um, we're all headed for a crisis, one way or another. That's just the way life is. It's a fallen world. I don't mean that to sound negative. I'm just saying that's kind of life. And in that time of crisis, or even just take crisis out of it, and just going through life, Are those things going to draw you closer to God or or further away from God? If you're in a crisis tonight, right now, what's happening? Honestly, right now, in your heart, what's happening? Are you drawing closer to God or are you letting this thing push you further away from God? And I would encourage you, trust him. Trust him. Trust him. And I'll end on this. How do I trust him? Is he trustworthy? We talked about those things. Read the word, believe the word, speak the word. But is he trustworthy? Well, Isaiah chapter 7, remember when Ahaz wouldn't give, ask God for a sign? God gave him one anyway. 
He said, well, here's what's going to happen. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. Now, there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Basically, the near fulfillment was this. There was a young lady who gave birth to a child, and his name was Emmanuel. And before he hit puberty, all these things took place, and it was a sign. But the far-reaching and the full fulfillment of that prophecy was there would come a virgin, a young girl, who would give birth to a, a, a man, a child, Jesus, as a virgin, and he would be a 100% God, a 100% man, and he would live perfectly on this world, live the life we should have lived, but then he would go and die the death we should have died on the cross. And my point in bringing that out is this. Is God trustworthy? The one that gave you the promise gave his life for you, died on the cross for you, bore, his, bore your sins on him. And if he loved you enough to do that, don't you know that he's trustworthy in the rest of the details of your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to lift up our time to you right now, and, and uh, I want to be a man that has a real firm faith in you. I've wavered so many times in my life. I've made every mistake in the book. Lord, I, I want to be a man of faith with firm faith. I want our church family to have firm faith. I don't want crises to push us away from you, but I want them to draw us close to you. Guys, right now, can I just ask you something real quick? Just let's keep our eyes closed for a moment. Let's just kind of create a, a moment of privacy for a second. But I do want to ask this. If you are personally right now in the midst of what you would consider a crisis, emotionally, circumstantially, but it's a personal crisis for you. Can I just, as an act of faith towards God, can I have you just lift your hand up to him? I'm not even really looking at you anyway, but just lift your hand if that's you. He sees you, and I just want to pray for you. Father, you see these hands up. And Lord, you know, just like you knew 65 years before the outcome of Ahaz's story, you know what's going to happen in these situations. You see the outcome, you see the difficulty, you see the problem, and we say that no problem is too big for you. And I want to pray in the name of Jesus for every one of my brothers and sisters that are going through it, that they would have firm faith in you. Lord, that they wouldn't put their faith in people or their ability to fix stuff, but they would trust you. I pray that you'd give them a scripture to hang on to, God. I pray that you would see them through this, Lord, and I pray, God, that their faith would be strengthened, and I commit them to you. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to read your word, believe your word, and proclaim your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. You're dismissed.